Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. What are we talking about today? We're going to have a little bit of story time. We're going to talk about a really good essay about software development called The Cathedral and the Bazaar that I think you all will really like. Awesome. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So I have to say this is a really interesting, timely episode because uh, so I have an open source project that it's a, a Google Chrome extension for a website and about about 10,000 people use it actually. And recently the website redesigned itself or the developers of the website redesigned it. It broke the extension and then like, I don't know, some percentage of the 10,000 people who use my extension were uh, out of luck because my extension was broken. And so I was trying to figure out if I cared enough to fix it or, or not. And it was literally today was the day that I found the time to sit down and hack on it for a couple of hours and fix it. So it's kind of cool to literally be just, I just released it maybe an hour ago. And now I'm recording this with you and we're talking about open source uh, software. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So the whole point of this essay is talking about open source software and why it works. So you have a little piece of that. Uh, the thing that's kind of cool about this essay is it follows a couple of really two projects in particular. One is the Linux open source kernel. And then the other, it follows a little bit more closely. The author of the piece, Eric Raymond, was working on this mail client that was this open source project that he was in charge of. And so what he's contrasting here, the cathedral and the bazaar, is the the cathedral is the idea that software has to be kept under fairly tight control as it's being developed and that there's a few people who are allowed to access it. It's closed source. Uh, there's probably less frequent updates because uh, there's more emphasis on things being stable. You don't want bugs to be introduced. So every re release has a lot of testing. It's a very, very top-down managed way of building software. Mm -hmm. Whereas the bazaar is you know, the example that he holds up is Linux. It's got all of these cooks in the kitchen and they're all doing little tweaks all of the time and making the case that you actually, in many cases, get better software with that second model, which is a little bit counterintuitive because out of that chaos, this order rising is a little bit funny. Um, and so the essay walks through that and lays out a set of what I think are really interesting axioms for developing software that help guide you along the way. So I want to go through that. That's awesome. Cool. So tell the story a little bit here. We will have a link on lineardigressions.com. I really encourage you to go just read it on your own. It's delightful and really well written. And even if you're not super technical, you can kind of get through the technical bits enough to appreciate the parts that are universal. Yeah, a lot of these things are, uh, like you said, universal because they're talking about ways of organizing things, <laughs> yes. like at a very core level. And uh, yeah, all of us organize things, no matter whether we write software or not. Yep. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, so Eric Raymond, the author, was he's a developer, and he, this is in, the piece was first published in 97, so I don't know, it's probably sometime in the 90s. And he needed to fix an issue with his email. Um, so he, there was some, the email thing that he was using at the time had some 
bad user experience about the way that the program was interacting with the system that he used it on. And so he's like, hmm, this isn't really great and I want to fix this problem. And so that's lesson number one, which is every good work of software starts by scratching a developer's personal itch. He started working on this because he cared about it and that that's uh, something that's universal for all good software projects is that the developer is like, I care about this for some reason. That is definitely true. Even if you're working at a company, it's a lot nicer if you like what you're working on because then you're you're a lot more uh, incentivized. You're uh, intrinsically motivated to make it better. Exactly. So wants to fix this email issue. And so he finds a couple of options online of other people who've written little email programs that look like they might solve the problem that he has. None of them are exactly perfect. All of them need a little bit of work, but he's a technical guy and he can do that. So that's not a huge problem. This brings us to point number two, which is that good programmers know what to write and great ones know what to rewrite and reuse. And so the point here is that he didn't start out like, I'm going to rewrite email from scratch. He started by going around a little bit to figure out what the lay of the land was and what pieces had already been built by other people that he could incorporate into the solution that he actually needed. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot. Um, I would say the the mark of a more experienced engineer is planning and thinking first and looking around and figuring out what already exists uh, and in what ways those things that already exist could be repurposed or uh, used to accomplish the goal that you want to that you want to accomplish. Of course, it's a lot more fun to just kind of go in there with your like hacksaw and your hammer and your screw gun <laughs> and just build it from scratch. But, you know, if something already exists and it's better engineered than you could do, then like use it. Yep. So that's what he did. He started working on one of the options that he found, uh, did some work, got some stuff done. But then a little while later, found a better option. There was a different option that either he hadn't totally appreciated why it was better the first time around, or it was new on the scene. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but he has this decision to make. So should I stay with the one that I've already invested in, or should I write off some of the work that I've done here, switch over to the new one, which I think can carry me further? And so this brings us to point number three, which is plan to throw one away. You will anyhow. Uh, so the idea being that that scratch code is just a reality of life and that it's almost inevitable that the thing that you write first is not going to make it past the first, is not going to make it live forever anyway. So yeah. be ready to kill it. <laughs> uh, I mean, we all have this sunk cost fallacy going on all the time. Well, I've already put work into this thing, so I should stick with it or whatever. The thing I like about this is plan to throw one version away is a way of almost like preventatively compensating for the sunk cost fallacy thinking that you're going to have in the future. It's the way, yeah, it's the way that you guard against a uh, law that premature optimization is the root of all evil. Oh yes, that, that is a good law. Scratch it out. Okay, so let's keep going. So he decided to switch, you know, declare some bankruptcy on the stuff that he had already done, move over to the new, the new um, project. So just say like the first implementation is where you're learning what it is you even are going to be doing. So now he knows what he wants to be doing. He wants to be working on this other project. So he gets over there and he realizes that it was set up by somebody who was good and knew what they were doing, but that person isn't really invested in maintaining it anymore. And so that's how 
Eric Raymond started maintaining that new project. Which brings us to points number four and number five. So point number four is if you have the right attitude, interesting problems will find you. So he didn't let himself be stopped by the fact that this project didn't have a maintainer. He was like, oh, well, okay, what if I did it? And ended up with a pretty interesting problem on his hands. And then point number five is when you lose interest in a program. So this is now speaking about the person who had started the project before he moved on to it and was not that interested in it anymore. When you lose interest in a program, your last duty is to hand it off to a competent successor, which I think is actually really deep for any of us who've started projects that maybe we care about or that have a lot going for them, but that we don't want to do anymore. Yeah. Your last duty is to hand it off to a competent successor, which I'll he did say in this case. That, that, um, yeah, I, I lost interest in my project uh, a couple years ago and I tried to find a competent successor and I'll say that that one is a lot easier said than done. because sometimes yeah. those are nowhere to be found, but ideally that's, that's the right way to do it. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. So Eric Raymond inherits pop client. That was his new email program that he got. Um, and it had a technical user base already associated with it. It sounded like not a gigantic one, not an insanely involved one, but there were people who used it. They cared about it. They were technical. And so that brings us to point number six, which is how do you think about those users? Uh, treating your users as co-developers is your least hassle route to rapid code improvement and effective debugging. So think about your users as your partners, as your co-developers that will help you make something better. And that's going to help you move so much faster and find the bugs so much more quickly and effectively. I'll say just on this one that I've learned that whenever anyone reports a bug, going it, it's really good to go out of your way to thank them profusely for their work. Because, uh, I mean, if you have coworkers, you want your coworkers to feel invested in the project. You want your coworkers to feel uh, seen and appreciated. If you're treating your users as co-developers, you don't want to just thank them for paying you or thank them for using your free product. Um, you want to thank them for uh, any positive uh, interaction that they have around being involved in the development, whether that's reporting bugs or even contributing if any of them do. Absolutely. Yeah. Users are one of, well, there's, there's another axiom that we'll get to in a little bit about how you should be good to your users. Um, but in the meantime, so he gets this, uh, you know, a little bit of like a proto bazaar option here, uh, where the bazaar is that you have all of these users who are engaged with your project and that are interested in seeing what advances they can make to it. And so what do you do with this? Well, in general, point number seven, you should release early you should release often, and you should listen to your customers. And he has a little aside here about how Linus Torvalds did this on the Linux project. He talks about Linus a lot and the kind of management style he he has. Um, and one of the things that he said Linus is really good at is keeping his hackers and his users, the people who are contributing to the Linux kernel, constantly stimulated and rewarded. Um, and so the the users always have something that brings them back to it thinking actively about what's the things that you can do. Um, how, how can you structure the community as a whole to encourage that? So release early, release often, and listen to your customers or some of the, the general tenets of that. And that overall, then you get a situation where code that's 
quickly debugged and quickly developed is valued more than code that's always stable. And that sounds like maybe you could end up with code that's unstable, which is bad. But his point is that in this project, in the Linux project, in many other open source projects, it seems to work anyway, which is kind of the miracle here. Okay, so let's move on to number eight. So you have your beta tester and your co-developer base. Given a big enough base, almost every problem will be characterized quickly, and the fix is obvious to someone. This is another way of articulating the, the axiom that given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. Have you heard this one? Uh, no, I like that one. Oh, yeah, it's a pretty good one. Um, and so the rough idea here is that when you have a bunch of different people who are working on the same code base, that number one, they just have all different skill sets and perspectives, and some of them will know the solutions, while others of them will be finding problems, and they can um, ideally find ways to talk to each other. You know, it's funny. I was just going to... I was just going to make a joke about having a certain, having a lot of certain creatures. And I was trying to figure out what creature had a lot of eyeballs. And so I searched for bug many eyeballs and I, I got Linus's law because (laughs) (laughs) that was a a poor Google Googling job just then. I was thinking you were going to get like one of those compound eyes that like fruit that's what have. but a compound eye is an is an eye it's one eye yeah it's not it's, it's not an eye eyeballs. with many lenses well anyway one of the beauties of having lots and lots of people <laughs> working on these things is that yeah you have those many eyeballs people are yeah sometimes the problems are being encountered by the people who don't necessarily know what the solutions are and the people who know what the solutions are aren't necessarily the ones encountering the problems but if you have a big enough user base and there's communication, then those two sides of the equation can match up and you find the bugs much more quickly. Okay, so uh, the user base is engaged. They're finding bugs quickly. Eric uh, has is sort of marshalling this project. He starts doing some, some work on the code and he's... Uh, finding himself going back and refactoring parts of the code to make it more extensible and more maintainable, doing paying down some technical debt, you might say, which brings us to point number nine. What's something that he said about this? Uh, he said, think about your data structures. Smart data structures and dumb code works a lot better than the other way around. So if you have to prioritize one or the other, think about your data structures instead of the code, which I thought was really right. interesting. So I guess he's thinking about... Uh code not just as a means to an end which is the behavior that you want the computer to to take but your code needs to be really easy to read if you have a lot of people maintaining it and it turns out it's a lot harder to read smart code you want your code to be really dumb you want your code to be really like boring and vanilla and plain so that way it's very easy to read it and understand very clearly what's going on. And if you have data structure, if you move a lot of your complexity from the code to your data structures and you name things well, then it becomes a bit more intuitive uh, what's happening. And you can also understand that logic when you're looking at your data structures in other contexts. Yeah, there was a there was a line in the essay that I didn't I didn't bother to write down, but I thought it was pretty good about if you tell me what your tables are, I can make a flowchart of the process flow for you. But if you give me a process flow without the tables, I will be mystified. 
um, which I thought was pretty profound. Mm. And there were a couple of things you yeah. said right there, there that recall some some future lessons that we'll get to in a few minutes. So let's keep going. Eric is now refactoring the code, bringing the community along with him, and is building, creating a conscious effort to follow community dev practices that are reminiscent of the Linux project, trying to actively encourage people to be involved. So this brings us to uh, point number 10. If you treat your beta testers as if they're your most valuable resource, they will respond by becoming your most valuable resource. Mm. So this is going right. back to uh, you know one of the earlier points about treating your users as co-developers is your least hassle route to code improvement and effective debugging. So this is saying I think something that's really similar again, but with a with a different emphasis. A lot of this comes back to so if you are a sole developer on a project, then it's really about you and your code. But if you are creating a community it's not really about your code. Uh, you, someone else can write your code. Someone else can write really great code. It's about the people. Uh, and if you focus on building the people and community, then your project will go a lot better because you'll have a community that will build that that will build it, that will um, support it, and bring all of their eyeballs and all of their brings uh, brains to the table. So, like when your project gets big enough that you're thinking about it like that, like a project like an email client or the Linux kernel, the code becomes almost unimportant and the technical solutions become almost unimportant to you, the leader of this project. Yeah, one of the other points that he makes here is that having a broad user base also means that your users are engaged in bringing their problems with that, with the existing code base to bear. So one of the examples he gives here is that there was an idea from a beta tester about how they should think about adding a new feature and doing some refactoring and this kind of thing. And he was like, it's a really elegant solution and it was a problem that needed to be asked and it was just a blind spot that I had. But because I had these people that really cared about the project and that felt invested in it, then they were able to point this out and it was much stronger than anything I would have built entirely on my own. Uh, Which brings us to point number 11, which is the next best thing to having good ideas is recognizing good ideas from your users. And sometimes the latter is better. So it's almost better to be a good curator of other people's ideas in this particular context than it is to be completely brilliant yourself. Yeah, this reminds me of Expert's Blind Spot. If you know the, like I'm thinking about the Linux kernel, if you know the Linux kernel super duper well, um, you're not a normal user. You know, you're kind of a you're kind of an outlier um, in that you have a lot of other things on your mind as you're using the the kernel. And in fact, a large part of your interaction with the Linux kernel is your uh, work developing it. So if you take uh, if you take feedback and ideas from your users who may be more uh, say normal users of the product that you're building you actually might get more profound things than you could possibly come up with yourself. Yeah, so that actually is a great segue into point number 12, which is that often the most striking and innovative solutions come from realizing that your concept of the problem itself was wrong. So that's another thing that users can be really helpful for or when you should be willing to step back when you're really pounding your head against a wall, that maybe you're thinking about the problem wrong instead of the solution wrong, which was one of the things that Eric was dealing with at this particular point in 
in the development problem or the development you know, process here. He was hitting this development wall, redefined the problem, and that got him unstuck. Which brings us to point number 13. He had to rip out all of this code in redefining the problem because all that problem, all that code was solving a different problem. Uh, point number 13 is a, I, I think, stolen slightly from uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the uh, author, but it's the idea that perfection is achieved not when there is nothing more to add, but rather when there is nothing more to take away. So, Yeah, I've heard that one before. I like yeah. that one. Yeah, so the artifact, one of the ways that you know that you're making a lot of progress on a project is that you're actually removing code from it, but that it still does what you need it to do and it does it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think this also applies very strongly to design, too. Like, um, I, I think Apple does a pretty good job of this, although I, I really, <laughs> I dislike Apple products because they don't have as many settings as Android uh, applications do. And I really like settings. I really like being able to customize. But I think that generally speaking, uh, simplicity trumps complexity. And um, that certainly is the case for user interfaces. Definitely. And this also go, goes back to some of the things you were saying earlier about having simpler, better code rather than cute complexity is, means you're on the right track. So redefine the problem, rip out a bunch of code, add in probably a little bit more extra code to solve the new problem. So now he's in a place where the code is working well. It's solving a real problem that people care about because they've contributed to the vision of the, of the project. They're really engaged and they're using and developing this. And so out of this, there was this new feature that ended up getting added that it sounded like did some distribution thing with how mail gets collected in group mailboxes and then distributed individually. I didn't totally understand it, but the thing that was kind of interesting about it that I did understand was point number 14. It builds this new feature that's supposed to solve one problem, but then people start using it to solve a completely different problem in a really interesting way. And so he says, any tool should be useful in the expected way, uh, but a truly great tool lends itself to uses you never expected. So this is a sign that you're doing something really well is when you build something that solves a problem or is used in ways that you never meant it to, but it still does very elegantly. The next few points are a little bit more technical, and I think in order to fully appreciate them, you would have to understand some of the details of how email clients work better than I do. But if that's your jam, I think they are, they probably have a lot of wisdom in them. So we should cover them. Number 15 is when writing gateway software of any kind, take pains to disturb the data stream as little as possible. So you're imagining there's this stream of data that's going through your code. You should as leave that as undisturbed as possible and never throw away information unless the recipient forces you to. So Unless there's some very, very good reason that the only way that you can make something work is by throwing away information, you should always keep as much information as possible as you're passing the data through. Yeah, I can just briefly speak to this, which is that if you are throwing away data or if you are changing the data stream as it goes through these various components, if you ever have to change the order of those components or you ever have components that are asynchronous and they, they may happen in different orders 
than each other uh, for one user versus another, or maybe you have to add another component in, or maybe you need to move a component from um, one place to another. Uh, if your data stream is the same throughout your entire thing, then you don't really have a problem. But if each of these components are mutating your data stream or rearranging it or reorganizing things, then you need to kind of support all of these different uh, schemas, you would call them. Throwing away information is similar. If you need information down the line uh, in some component, you don't want to have to go and figure out what component is removing the information that you need further down the line. It's a lot simpler if you just keep everything intact. That makes sense. Number 16 goes back to a point that you made earlier. When your language is nowhere near Turing complete, syntactic sugar can be your friend. And the meta point here was that it sounded like there were some options about how they could do the, the naming conventions and maybe whether they should have be using an imperative language or something else. And the point was that you can you could have something that was really consistent, but that consistency wasn't really getting you anything, but it was coming at the cost of making the code readable. And so he's like, you know what? Just make the code readable. Like we're not, this is not deep and profound computer science here. We need to make an email client that works and that having something that people can read and that people can understand is more valuable than this theoretical perfection. Right. And that's what syntactic sugar is, is it saying, uh, okay, write it in this more readable way. And then perhaps that will be transformed to the actual code, which is a little bit more complex or something like that. Yep. Yep. Uh, number 17, again, a little bit technical, having to do with security, that a security system is only as secure as its secret. And so beware of pseudo secrets. So it's the general idea that if something looks like it's sort of secure, but it's not really secure, then what that's going to do, I think it's lull your more you're less engaged users into a false sense of security and the people who want to crack it are still going to be able to crack it so you should and also your developers also your developers because if if i'm a developer on an open source project and i see like oh crypto blah 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 blah, i'm not going to go and read that because i'm not not a cryptographic expert and i'm just going to assume you know what they've got the security thing down um in the in the way that they're you know, downloading the data or the way that they're storing it or the way that they're dealing with password management or any of that stuff. Like if you have a pseudo secret, which is not really uh, a secret, or we'll say is not really, if you have pseudo security, which is not really secure, then it can lull your developers even into a sense, a false sense of security. And then they won't take steps to make things better. And then in terms of cryptographically is only as secure as its secret, the secret being uh, effectively the key to uh, your database or or whatever it is. You want to make sure that that thing is locked away. It's kind of like the password. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the password, the master password. Cool. So we are almost at the end here. So point number 18. So now we're at a place where solving all kinds of interesting problems, all these people care Uh, Point number 18, to solve an interesting problem, start by finding a problem that is interesting to you. So this is going back to point number one a little bit. Yeah. Which was every good work of software starts by scratching a developer's personal itch that if you want to work on things that are interesting, you should 
work on things that you find interesting. Hmm. Uh, and then the last axiom here, number 19, uh, provided the development coordinator has a communications medium, at least as good as the internet, which in 1997 might not have been a foregone conclusion, but it's pretty easy to do right now. But if you have a communication medium that's as good as the internet and someone who knows how to lead without coercion, uh, then many heads are inevitably better than one. And so this is kind of taking the entire thing and putting a bow on it. The idea that we've made something here through contributions for many, many people by creating an environment, a way of working, a set of expectations, a set of priorities that get all these people involved and aligned, and it creates a culture, and that that culture is more powerful than any kind of top-down strategy that you might have. And so the role of the coordinator in that situation is not to mandate what everyone should be doing or telling everyone what they have to be thinking about, but instead to put all of those put all of those structures in place that allow the creativity to happen on its own. It's like that old Peter Drucker saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's like that. So to wrap this up, this is talking about why the bizarre style of open source software development beats the cathedral. Now, not everything, not every project that you ever work on is a good candidate for bizarre style. It's beautiful when it works. It's hard to do. Uh, So a few tips. First is that it's very hard to originate a project in the bizarre style. You should instead give users a starting like framework, a starting tool, something that runs right out of the box. So remember, he started with some email clients that had gotten off of the ground in a more top-down way that had single developers who set the vision. And that was important for kind of getting them going. And then bizarre right. style is where they gain momentum. Right. That makes sense. It's hard to imagine a a situation where a group of people could just kind of, without any framework, start something. You need something to kind of jumpstart it and also to have some um, norms that they can then follow. Yes. The software in particular, this is the second point, what makes a, a software seed a good candidate for starting one of these bizarre style collaborations? Uh, it has to run. And ideally, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's really important. It's a good is place to start. You have to give people like working software that they can run and that they can play with. Um, so it, it has to run. Um, and it has to be something where you can convince potential co-developers that it can be really neat in the future. So it's running and there's also a lot of growth potential that people can get excited about. Number three, we sort of already said, uh, but the coordinator's main job is to recognize good ideas from other people, not necessarily to originate every single one of them himself or herself. And then number four, we've said a couple times already, is that robust and simple is better than cute and complicated. And that if it works and that it's solid and that it's it doesn't have to be the most glamorous thing in the world, and that moreover, it's kind of a kind of a good thing when it's not the most glamorous thing in the world because very often that goes hand in hand with being complex and that makes it harder for people to contribute to, which kills the entire system that you're going for. So you put all of those together. Um, if you're a person who's involved in open source software, I would definitely, you maybe you see some, some hints of this, or maybe if you don't work in open source software, but you like this idea, you can think of some, uh, take some of these axioms and apply them to 
your life. In either case, it's a really excellent essay. We will have a link on LinearDigressions.com. Highly recommend it that next time you have a half hour, you sit down and read it. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.